You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Web Culture and WMR.FM. It's the, uh, 24th of, it's the 24th of March, 2022. I will get my dates right, especially since it's uh, one month since the illegal invasion of uh, Ukraine began. And uh, interestingly, we have uh, in the uh, green room waiting to, to, to join us in an interview, we have Ted Harrington, a uh, cybersecurity expert. And um, one of the people you might think of when you hear the term ethical hacker. We'll let you all think about that for a few minutes. A um, couple of uh, fairly major things happened in the search world over the last uh the last week, as, as they will, um, there's a products review update that's uh, in a mega long rollout. Uh, this is going to be like three weeks before it's done. Yep. So what we know about it so far, and I'm, I'm, I'm admittedly, I'm getting most of what we know from um, our friend and hero, uh, Barry Schwartz over at uh, SE Roundtable. Um, it's going to take about three weeks to fully go through. It's looking at uh, and reviewing um, the content that you have around products. Um, and this is both the uh, content that you generate and user-generated content. Um, it's not going to penalize, but it will reward. And as you know, Dave's fond of saying, um, if your competition gets, reward, gets rewarded, you've effectively gotten penalized. Um, it's uh, not a core update. It's English language only currently, but that's going to uh, change over time. It's a it's a global update, a global launch, so it'll be hitting multiple languages over time. But right now, it's uh, it's English only. If you get hit by it, if you need to recover, rewrite your content. That's that's Google's advice, um, and they're going to refresh this um, part of their algorithm. A number of times in the future. This isn't a full algorithm update or anything of the sort, but they're all, they're updating a piece of the algorithm. Um, do you ever get concerned about stuff like this, Dave? When uh, when 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 Google rolls out a, an update? You know, I used to get a lot more concerned when I was uh, an affiliate marketer. 
Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, anytime an update comes on, I always wait for that butterfly effect, right? It's like, it's meaning to do this, but this happens. Um, it will be interesting to see if that effect hits e-com, but it, it seems like a, as much as anything can be like a pretty straightforward update on their part, like what they're looking for. I don't think there's anybody in the listening audience other than affiliate marketers who just rip off people's content. I've been one. I'm not judging. Um, I know what it's not that they rip it off on purpose. It, this is honestly, when you deal with like these mega e-com sites, it's what the distributors provide to you. It, it's you true. Know, it's often they, in all caps not, too. But you think what Google said, and they've said it from the beginning, provide an extra value. Right, like if I'm taking what the the manufacturers provided me, no problem. It should probably be there. Specs are specs, but what other value? Otherwise, why is it not just Amazon? The question will be always, why is it not just Amazon for a product? Um, yeah. And so you need to provide that extra value um, to 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 sort of show that, or or the manufacturer site, or any any other website. Right. So I mean, it, it makes sense. I think the writing has been on the wall for like a decade um, that stuff like this was, was going to continue to roll out. This won't be. Well, and, and the fact like Google does this every couple of months, you know? Um, so if you lose ranking on this, it's not that you've lost ranking. It's that your competitors have gained ranking and you've just readjusted as they've risen. That's your indicator that you've got to uh, work on content. And, and like Dave said, um, often it's, 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 it's manufacturer's content that you got to keep there because it's, you know it's, that's that's their specs but you should rewrite the descriptions and stuff so you don't look like everybody else okay we got a guest waiting we got a couple more stories to go through um uh, google analytics 4 is here to stay nothing's going to change it um we reported last week that it was rolling out everybody flipped out when google uh, announced that it was rolling out and replacing uh, universal analytics <laughs> It's still rolling out to replace Universal Analytics a year from now, and all the freakouts you, you have aren't going to change that. What you can do is learn a lot more about it. Uh, coming up in future episodes, we will have Alan Kanek and hopefully Donna DiTomaso, um, two uh, analytics experts, to go through um, GA4. Google announced integration of uh, GA4 and Search Ads 360. Um, is that going to confuse a lot of paid marketers, Dave? Um. Yes, uh, but I mean, there's a gap and it makes perfect sense that they're doing this because I think they're trying to give people this window. Um, and so I, I don't think it'll really confuse people. There'll be the short term confusing, but I think it's to give people that lead time because I think that the longer people have to double report and to really understand how things are changing. Right. I, I'm spending a lot of the next two weeks going, OK, this is what's in universal analytics and this is what I need to make sure that. Um, I can easily access or anybody can easily access in reports, um, you know, over in GA4, things like that. I mean, this isn't related to that specific, uh, you know, need, but I, I think that's basically what it boils down to is just giving people enough time to sort of understand um, what they're doing. And you think of like a new user, somebody who's just launched their site, just launched their company. Yeah. Do this. Don't even get them into universal analytics. Like just and good for them, right? <laughs> just, just, just bypass that because don't learn something that you need to forget, um, you know, mm -hmm. a, a year from now or, or probably less. So, um, so yeah, I don't think it'll be a big confusion, but um, I, I, I do think it's good for them to, to let people get in there early. Absolutely. Um, and if you haven't already, uh, Google is making it super easy 
to turn on uh, Google Analytics 4, to initiate Google Analytics 4 from your Universal Analytics account. Look across the very top, there's a blue bar with a very handy, although uh, slightly weird because it's also a blue button. Um, click the blue button. It's in the upper right-hand corner. Um, it is blue on blue, but I swear to you it's there. And um, away you go. Um, uh, once it's set up, it starts gathering data. Um, it's not replacing Universal Analytics until July 2023, but get a year's worth of data there before uh, before it goes before Universal goes away, and um, you'll have some legacy stuff to deal with. Okay, we've got a guest waiting in the green room, and since we're using Zoom for our meetings, I can actually see him staring at us, waiting for us to get waiting for us to get through. So I just want to get to the news now. We're done. Ted Harrington. Um, Ted's an author of uh, Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. He's also the executive partner at uh, Independent Security Evaluators, ISE, the company of ethical hackers, famous for hacking cars, medical devices, password managers, and well, stuff that you guys might have heard about in the news. He's helped hundreds of uh, companies fix tens of thousands of security vulnerabilities, including Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Netflix, and, and others. We're going to press him on um, how secure Google is. He's probably not going to tell us half the stuff that we're going to want to know, but we're going to press him anyway. Ted Harrington has helped hundreds of companies fix uh, thousands of vulnerabilities. Disney, Amazon, Google, Netflix, Adobe, Warner Brothers, Qualcomm, um, and others. He is uh, probably one of the best known, quote unquote, ethical hackers. He leads a team that started and organizes IoT, um, Internet of Things Village, an event whose hacking contest is a uh, three-time DEF CON Black Badge winner for discovering more than 300 zero-day vulnerabilities and counting. This is the guy who gets interviewed when media wants to talk about hacking um, and wants to try to understand um, the, 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 the murky world that goes on behind the password screen. Ted Harrington, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us here on Webcology. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, we've been trying to arrange this time for over six weeks now. And back in that quaint time in the middle of February when our worst concerns were maybe somebody was going to bust into my WordPress site, um, our conversation might have been actually, we have much larger concerns obviously than that, but most of our listeners are concerned about their own websites, um, maybe, maybe large e-coms for, for, for corporate clients. But I think the terms of cybersecurity have shifted rather dramatically in the last month. Um, and and that's, that's kind of where I want to start. But before I do, could you introduce us to the concept of ethical hacking? Sure. Yeah. And I would be very interested to explore the question that you started with uh, after. So we should answer that question by first talking about what hacking is. Who is a hacker? What is a hacker? Because if the media is to be believed, you would think that a hacker is a malicious person associated in some way with wrongdoing. And that's only actually partly true. Because what a hacker is, a hacker is neither good nor bad. A hacker is a problem solver. 
A hacker is somebody who looks at a system and understands how that system works and tries to determine, can this system behave differently than it was intended to behave originally? So if we think back to like way back in the day, that TV show MacGyver, where he could, you know, turn a paper clip into like a car key or I actually never even watched the show. So I just only know the metaphor of MacGyver, but <laughs> he's a hacker. He would look at things and say, oh, this thing, the paper clip is supposed to clip together paper, but can I make it become a detonator for a bomb or whatever he would do? So that's what hackers do, right? They look at things and they say, it's supposed to do A, can I make it do B instead? Now the fork in the road comes to motivation. So the hackers that are out there who want to harm organizations, who want to gain uh, personally in some way, but at the expense of someone else, uh, those more malicious ones, those are the attackers. Those are the ones that the media is talking about when they say hacker and they, they're talking about it in a negative sense. But the other side of the road, the other fork to the road is people who come from my corner of the world, which are called ethical hackers. And ethical hackers, we also want to look at systems and, and see how they'd get broken. But we do that because we want to fix them. So that motivation is a very positive one. It's, you know, we want, we'll do the exact same things the bad guys do. We're looking for those holes. We're looking for how you're going to abuse these systems, but the outcome is different. We're not trying to exploit the problem. We're trying to actually remediate or eliminate the problem entirely. So that's what ethical hacking is. Ethical hacking is basically we're the good guy hackers, right? Companies will hire us to look at their software or their systems and say, how would an attacker break this? And then how do we make it better? Okay, so you're a um, basically a cyber criminal who's not acting in criminal ways. You're going in, you're breaking stuff, you're documenting how it was broken and then showing them how to fix it. And let me withdraw well, the cyber criminal part. I, I, I regret that. I regret that phrase. <laughs> yeah, you, you were, I was about to go to town on that. Um, and the reason I say that is not because I actually understood the spirit of the question that you're asking. Um, but the, that word is actually a powerful word. Yeah, and so many people, when they talk about hacker equals bad, they're saying hacker equals criminal. And well, why do we first go there? Are why, why are we so inclined <laughs> to want to go there? Um, even though I know you're an ethical dude, I've, I, I've studied, I, I've before agreed to have you on the show. I looked at India, you, you, you check out. So why is my head going there? Well, probably because you've been conditioned by all the stories that you've read and everything. And, you know, what stories sell are more sensational ones. So ones that talk about, uh, you know, hacker has really become this sort of scary, sort of sensational idea. But people who build things, people who build software systems, I mean, they call themselves hackers. Look at what's the address of Facebook. It's one hacker way. Indeed, right. I so. I think many many SEOs, many, many SEOs who 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 work to um, try to understand um, how Google functions, mm -hmm. and then you know uh, 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 affect their clients or their own websites to take advantage of Google's algorithms, they might consider themselves hackers as well. I I would argue they should consider themselves hackers because what are they doing? They're looking at a system. They don't know how the system works. 
from because Google's not necessarily you know pulling back the curtain to say here's how the algorithm works now, um, but they're they're looking at the system and saying, well, can I make it do something I want it to do on behalf of my customers or whatever? And that's that's what hackers do. And so in in my context, you know, ethical hacker does mean a very specific thing, which is you know an entity or person or entity who breaks uh, tries to find out how a system will be broken in order to improve it. Um, so that's a little bit different than. And SEO, as you're describing, but it's the same spirit. How do you how do you make a system do something differently than uh, a real? indeed? I never I never claimed the word ethical was attached to the ethical SEO hacking spirit. <laughs> um, and most and and to be honest, most most SEOs know their way around a keyboard and and very much understand how the internet works, but don't have the chops, skills, or knowledge that you or your team do. Um, what is it you guys really, really, what kind of vulnerabilities are large Fortune 500 corporations or other organizations actually hiring you all to find? Well, they might not necessarily know what the vulnerability is that they're asking us to help them find. They just know that there are vulnerabilities. And so then our job is to go to determine uh, not only what vulnerabilities exist, and also, are they exploitable? Which is like, that's an important difference, right? Having a weakness and being able to take advantage of the weakness are two different things. Um, but then it's also helping them understand how bad it is, right? Because not all vulnerabilities are the same. So uh, the, there's a few dials, I guess you could say, that sort of determine how severe a vulnerability is, but they're essentially boiled down to things like um, how easy or accessible is this problem? And that that's one major dial. So if it's, if it's very hard to do or very hard to get to, then the severity comes down. Uh, if it's very easy to do, the severity is very high. Uh, and then the other is um, what would be the impact, right? So, okay, let's say this problem is exploited. What happens if it's embarrassed? Maybe it's lower, but if it's it puts the company out of business, then obviously that's very significant. And the worst are when it's easy to do or very. You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand, and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply accessible to uh, to get to and it has enormous impact and you'd be surprised that combination of things that's where you have what's called a critical severity vulnerability those are actually pretty common and those are the things that are the top of the priority list let's find the critical issues and get rid of those then we work on the highs so on and so forth 
Now, when you're approaching a problem, this is this is part of the, the process that I've always really wondered about. Um, when you're approaching, you don't know what you're going to find. They don't know what you're going to find necessarily because if they did, they'd have fixed it already, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're sending you in and going, show us what's wrong. In your experience, is the bigger hurdle on the technical, like clearly you have to have a like technical chops, like you have to have like a, a library and then like a, of information in your head and then a database of places to go to find new stuff. Mm-hmm. Or is it on the creative? How do I think about the problem in how to abuse what I'm looking at, right? Or like, and, and find the, I don't mean you abusing it, but finding those vulnerabilities because you're having to put yourself into a black hat hacker's mind mm-hmm. and go, how can I wreck this now? Yeah. Um, so is, 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 do you find generally it's more a technical problem where you know the abuse, you just need to like somehow like force your way through and find that? Or is it, how do I think like that person? Mm-hmm. And how do I approach something I've, I've never seen before and find out what to do? Yeah, the, the uncertainty part is what makes it really exciting and dynamic, right? Knowing you go into a project and you just, you don't know, like you have to, you have to be a problem solver. So let me use this metaphor to try to explain this. So let's, let's say that we're experts on, um, in auto, in automobiles and the braking systems, right? The system, you, you depress your foot on a pedal and it slows the car down. Although Tesla is changing the way braking systems work, but we're all familiar with that idea. So let's say I'm an expert at the braking systems for uh, Japanese cars, for let's just say Toyota. And BMW, Japan, uh, German car says, hey, can you come help us evaluate our braking system? Or better yet, let's say Tesla, we have a brand new way to create braking systems in cars. You're a braking expert on Japanese cars. Can you come look at our system? It's totally different than anything you've ever seen. Will we be able to figure out how the vehicle slows itself down? Absolutely, because it's a systematic process. We know what we have to do in order to evaluate how does the system work? And once you understand how a system works, then you can look at how do you break a system? And that is where People who see the world the way that we see the world, which is not for everybody, I have to say. It is not. For, it's like for anyone who's ever seen the movie The Matrix and uh, they get they unplug from The Matrix and it's like, it sucks. <laughs> it's like all of a sudden it's this like dark world. And you're like, oh, I was kind of better in The Matrix. That's in a lot of ways what it's like to be a <laughs> uh, an ethical hacker or, or any type of hacker because you're like, now all I see is the way the world can be broken. And so to put a very fine point on your question, Dave, um, it is a critical prerequisite that you need to be able to think like the attacker. And then you need to pair with it the technical capability to understand how to execute and implement that thought process. So using the, the, the sort of problem you were addressing with where, okay, now Elon's called you up and in you go and, and, and you're sitting at Tesla. It is a different thing that, that you've dealt with before, right? Like, so I imagine you would have to pull in a grouping of people, somebody who's going to understand how the operating system of the Tesla car in general operates, somebody who ought like different levels of understanding about, this isn't something you've worked on necessarily. I, I know you probably couldn't tell me if you had, but how many people would, would you end up having to pull into a problem like that? Just rough estimate. How, how big does that scale have to be to provide that person, like to provide Elon with like a confident answer that Mm. yes, your brakes are safe or no, but here's what you need to fix. Yeah. So you're, 
inherent in the question you're asking is a really, really, really important question that is often overlooked in cybersecurity. And the question is, how should we collaborate? How should companies who are building things collaborate with the security experts they hire to help them? And the answer to that is there should be a high degree of collaboration, high degree of information sharing. Yet the way that most people actually think about security is the opposite. Uh, what they want to do is they want to withhold information, right? So they'll say things like, well, the attacker doesn't know how the system works. So I'm not going to tell the security company I've hired to that I've hired to, you know, hack my system. I'm not going to tell them how the system works because the attacker doesn't know that stuff. But that's really, really bad because that is an advantage that the <coughs> defender has. The defender has the advantage of information and by not sharing that advantage, you're actually uh, setting yourself back. So it's not, a, it's not a good way to think about it. So now the answer for how many people need to be involved with information sharing, that depends really on the scope of a given system. And from our experience, as we're doing these types of projects, it's usually not that many people. You know, it's like, we need somebody who understands the architecture of the system. How's it built? Somebody who can explain to us the business use case, like why does this system exist? Who's it for? Uh, what do the users care about? Who are the users? Those kinds of things. How do we make money? It can be even one person who can share all of these things. And then it's on us to know how to ask the right questions to be able to get to the heart of the matter. Um, but rarely is it like we need the whole company involved. You know, it's usually a small number of people. They walk us through how the system works and then we're off to the races from there. So you don't actually need all hands on deck. You don't need a representative from all departments to um, be involved to ensure uh, corporate uh, security. Um, something you said earlier about uh, your clients not necessarily giving you full information it made me think that there's people you need to give information to, your accountant, your lawyer, your doctor, your cybersecurity expert. Um, how... And this is a very general question for sure, but how insecure is corporate North America? <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. How bad, how bad is well, it? Well, I mean, again, uh, <laughs> it's hard to phrase that question without asking really generally and then going into specifics. Yeah. Yeah, so it is, it is a general question, um, but it's an important one. And the answer to it has two answers are two parts of the answer and they're gonna sound like they contradict. So the first part is things are getting better. And the second part is things are getting worse. <laughs> so what I mean this by things are getting- This a game of cat and mouse? Yeah, it's like, Ted, can you just give me a straight answer? Like I'm asking a straightforward question. Um, but those are, they're two different topics and the, the question is how do they intersect? So things are getting better. This, by this, what I mean is that the way that companies today think about security is vastly better than they thought about it 15 or 20 years ago. That there, it's, there's a significant improvement in the way that organizations think about security, the way they're investing in security, the way they're building security teams. That's a really, really positive thing that we're moving in the right direction. But it's as, although that's getting better, the things that are getting worse are getting worse at maybe a bigger rate. And that's things like the rate at which technology changes, the rate at which the attackers change, uh, the rate at which we are relentlessly moving to adopt technology across all uh, aspects of the business. So these things inherently uh, weaken the security posture, even though we're getting better at it. 
So it's sort of like we're making progress, but we're not making progress fast enough. Well, yeah, what, I, what I meant to ask is, is it a game of cat and mouse between the uh, hackers, the, the, the bad hackers, the, 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 the evildoers and the security experts? Um, you patch one hole and the bad guys find five more. Yeah, I like to think of it as an arms race. And both sides are continually getting better, uh, improving skills, developing new techniques, new tools. Uh, defenses are improving and the attackers are inventing new techniques. So it's one of these things where people sometimes want to think about security as a thing that can be done, right? Like, oh, I did my security this year and now I can chill. That's like an Olympian being like, I ran my wind sprints this month and I can wait until the games now. And it's like, no, you constantly have to be getting better because your opponents are constantly getting better. Every day, someone is trying to outwork you. And that's the way we need to think about security. It's, it truly is an arms race. And so I, even though that's, it's close to the idea of cat and mouse, uh, I think it's a little more inspirational because – really it, it helps us understand the game that we're in. The game that we're in is um, we are against very dedicated, very sophisticated, very motivated opponents. And so that has to influence the way that we think about, the way that we approach, and the way that we invest time, effort, money, and other resources in solving this problem. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. For maximum customer engagement and retention, choose CleverTap. CleverTap is a leading customer engagement and retention platform that helps digital brands maximize lifetime value. Over 8,000 apps around the world, including Vodafone, Star, and Sony, trust CleverTap to improve user engagement, boost retention, and fuel long-term revenue growth. Learn more at CleverTap.com. That's CleverTap.com. Miami is more than beaches, palm trees, and fun in the sun. It's home every year to the Miami Book Fair, celebrating its 39th year of hosting authors and readers from around the world, November 13th through the 20th. Join us in downtown Miami at the Wolfson campus of Miami-Dade College. Connect with over 500 authors reading from their books in English, Spanish, French, and Creole, answering questions and signing hard copies. The 2022 edition of the Miami Book Fair welcomes everyone of all ages to come together, meet, and make new friends, exchange ideas, and discover one's next favorite author. Let's explore, discover, and learn together. Featured authors will include award-winning novelists, Anthony Horowitz, Ben Mesrich, Craig Johnson, Danny Shapiro, Elena Shapiro, Jimmy Attenberg, poet Sandra Cisneros, and authors writing about the trending topics of the day. Lisa Genova, Jerry Stahl, Marie Brenner, Mark Kurlansky, Samantha Cole, Stacey Schiff, Katie Tour, and many others. For more information, please visit MiamiBookFair.com. Follow the fair at Miami Book Fair and join the conversation hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022.
So I, I've been trying to think of a, a question that I could ask that could get my, that could gauge my feel for how confident you are in who's winning this battle. Is it actually okay. getting better or is it actually getting worse? And I, I think I've got it. If, if Elon could come to you and, and say, this vehicle 100% drives according to all the rules, you are safe in it. Mm-hmm. But knowing the vulnerabilities, as you do, that could possibly exist, would you hop in that vehicle right now and feel safe driving around in an autonomous vehicle, knowing that there's somebody out there trying to hack those brakes on you? Yes, I would. I would feel comfortable doing that. Uh, not because the vulnerabilities don't exist, but because inherently my profession is risk, is understanding risk and understanding what's acceptable. And uh, most people, when they think about autonomous cars, they think about, well, it might get in an accident. And then you drive down any freeway and you look at all the other drivers and you're like, (laughs) those are the things I'm worried about. (laughs) Another idiot's on the road. So someone hacking my car. Yeah, that's a legitimate thing. And I think especially, um, you know, people who have a, a target maybe on their back, like should the president of the United States drive a self-driving car? Probably not, right? But should the average person who uh, is not likely to get targeted, that's probably fine. Um, could there be a software failure in some way that results in an adverse outcome? Absolutely, but just the same way as there could be a mechanical failure, there could be issues with the road itself, with rain, there could be a uh, an earthquake and you fall into literally liquid hot magma, like there, it's just not a, even though I said, I was describing before this idea of like, you know, once you're a hacker, you're sort of unplugged from the matrix and you just see the bad in the world. And that is true, but you, you have to become comfortable with it. And um, I can accept that there is risk to the way that connected devices impact, especially transportation and especially delivery of healthcare. Those things really do alarm me. But the reason I'm okay with it is I see such passionate security professionals working on these problems in those fields. But you, I would expect that in medical. I would expect that in, in transportation, absolutely, or anywhere anywhere that uh, hard goods are involved. But I don't necessarily um, believe that the guy who's making my fridge or my e-toaster or what have you, stuff that might have my credit card and banking information embedded in it so it can automatically order um, supplies w- when I need them. Um, part of your bio uh, noted the IoT village. Um how secure is the new world that we're moving into um, where we have smart appliances, smart kitchens, smart garages, etc.? It's not great. And it's not great yet. Let's, let's say that way. I, I do believe that IOT is going really, really wonderful places. So uh, what we need to realize is let's think about the whole world of IOT and then maybe narrow in on how we should think about different segments to it. A lot of people, when they think about the internet of things, they think just about the consumer grade stuff, like the things you mentioned, the fridge, the toaster or whatever. Um, but it's really IOT is any system that you can communicate with. So we just talked about cars. That's part of IOT. Medical devices are part of IOT. Even manufacturing lines that have all these sensors all over them. Those are a, a subset of IOT. It's called uh, operational technology. Um, so, but your question was really about consumer grade electronics. And the way to think about that is probably this. The more expensive and the larger it is, the more 
that is able to be invested in security. So if it's larger, there's more space on the chipset <laughs> that can, can be dedicated to security capability. And the more expensive it is, the easier it is to bake in the cost of security. When you go to the other end of the spectrum, you're talking about your, you know, maybe your light bulb or something. It is a little, um, it's a little harder to implement security in those things. And so my, my personal take on it is that everyone, like all things in your life, you have to make the right risk reward trade-off. And so I like to look at things and say, well, is it worth having that connected thing because it does X, Y, or Z for my life, knowing that someone might be able to have access to my information if it gets stolen. And then that's how I make the decision. So for me, I'm, I'm not super interested in a lot of connected devices. So I'll, there's a lot of them I won't choose to have. For sure, I will not have a voice assistant. Like I, I do not want to put an active microphone in my house that is always listening. You don't have and Google Home or Alexa or a device like no. that? Okay, I, interesting. I, I, when I visit my parents, they have them in every room and I will unplug them in the room that I'm in. And they're like, they get annoyed because I forget to plug it back in <laughs> again when I leave. <laughs> and they're like, why is it? Oh, because Ted is here. The thing doesn't work. Why do you do that? What, 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 what's your impulse to do that when you first walk in? I mean, think about what we're doing with that, right? We're saying um, we're inviting a company to come listen to everything that we have to say. And they have their terms and conditions, right? That says, oh, we're only going to do this. We're not going to do with that, with it. It's like, that's what you say. <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, the only way to be sure that I'm not going to have that problem is if I you know, unplug those. And, and so that's, it's a great example of where I don't think that the benefit trade-off is high enough. Like when people are like, oh, you can just tell it to turn off the lights. I'm like, I'm standing next to the light switch. <laughs> what, is, what is the benefit here? Um, but other things like um, having connect, like a smart lighting system, that's pretty cool to me. When the lights in the room change at certain times of day, they react to uh, maybe what's on the TV. So there, that to me is I'm like, hmm, the cool factor of that, I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> okay. And this, this is bringing up a really interesting topic to me, which is that, that sort of trade-off. And you, you've talked about it a few times now that like, okay, I, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice this. And a difference between you who sees this, the, the, the matrix code all around and have found it kind of depressing once it's lifted actually a little bit from what I'm understanding and, and the dark kind of gross world going, put me back in, steak tastes better there. Um, you know, versus your parents who haven't had that. And, and I'm a lay person. I haven't had that. Jim, our co-host, hasn't had that. What do people like us believe that we shouldn't? I mean, you're, you're kind of stripping some of that away from me now. Thank you very much. I don't know whether I'm <laughs> preferring this or not. I'm feeling a little unplugged, but still connected, and I can go back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what what misconceptions do we have that probably we shouldn't about, about what's going on? I think the biggest one is probably that uh, each person feels this way about themselves. I'm, I'm not significant enough to be a target. And I, I want to say that's true. <laughs> I want people to be like, okay, good. I'm, I don't have anything to worry about. I'm not a head of state. I'm not a head of a you know, titan of industry or something like that. Um, but 
attackers, they like the everyday person because the everyday person, they're pretty easy to, to compromise and they have social security numbers and ways to open up credit and, um, you know, someone like taking a mortgage out in your name that that could that could really ruin you financially. Uh, even if you were able to get the money back, the time and effort to you know to deal with that's a pain. So I think that's the big thing is people who are a little more cavalier about their security because they think it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them. They're like, I'm just some small person who does like whatever. I'm not. Who cares? Um, but people are not necessarily, those types of people are not necessarily targeted. Like there's not a hacker, you know, of the evil type on some screen and, you know, pick your country around the world. Who's like, let me go find John Smith at, you know, one, two, three main street. But they're like, let me, let me do this thing that targets hundreds of thousands of people. And then the, you know, one or 2% of them who fall for it. Now I'm going to go destroy those people. And I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a perfect example. There's uh there's this scam that gets run on Craigslist for people who are looking for housing in really hot markets, like in uh, Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco or wherever. And they'll, the, the scammers will create an ad that looks legitimate and it looks, it looks like too good to be true. It's like a little bit less than market value or what the market rate would be. It's available right now. And what do you know? The people listing it are responding to you. They like you, they want to give it to you, but you have to wire them the security deposit and the first month's rent without seeing it because it's so hot, they don't have time to show it to you. They're out of state, they're not gonna be able to come back. And a lot of that plays on people's fear. And that's an example of where someone will think, well, I'm not gonna be targeted, but hold on, things like this happen in your real life. And when you send that money, it's gone. There's the banks cannot get it back for you. That's, you know, you wire money, you're done. So. Yeah, uh, that's the biggest misconception. People believe that they are not likely to be targeted, and um, that's unfortunately not true. I heard, and I remember reading a, a weird stat that um, our consumer profiles are available on the dark web for like you know pennies a profile. How easy is it for um, for 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 um, cyber criminals to take already known information about consumers? So that, if you if 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 you have a computer, chances are you got hacked years ago. Um, I, I understand that to be true as well. Um, how is how easy is it for the um, cyber criminals to circle the square here and actually um, commit identity theft with information that's already out there about many uh, many internet users? It's un I wouldn't say it's simple, um, but it's unfortunately not extraordinarily difficult. Uh, there are some significant hoops that identity thieves have to jump through. And the primary areas that are um, where the targets live or, or how these attacks are monetized typically go through our financial systems. And the financial systems are very aware of this and, and they try to flag as many of these as they can. So for example, um, when you go to wire money through your bank, uh, your bank will huge notices when before you click submit that says like, hey, do you know this person? Do you know, like, did you talk to him on the phone? Are you sure this is the right address? You cannot get this money back. And um, so there's, that's just an example I'm saying of where we know where the types of fraud lives. Um, when people are trying to open up lines of credit or uh, I mentioned like mortgage before, 
the the institutions that open these things they want to make sure that they're lending it to the person who's credit worthy so they have checks and balances uh so it's it's actually an interesting system where the individual victim isn't able to look out for themselves and it's not even necessarily the the law enforcement's looking out for them it's the purse strings it's the financial institutions they want to make sure the problem doesn't happen because they're going to eat it uh if it comes back to them through any sort of legal action um so that's a long way of saying that there are some significant hurdles to jump through. It's not like, hey, everybody go home and cry because your identity is going to get stolen. But there are some things that I would definitely recommend that everybody does. Um, first and foremost, uh, put a freeze on your credit. It's, uh, it's either very cheap or free to do. There's basically three major bureaus. It takes 10 minutes, maybe total, to do all three of them. You do it online. You don't have to call anybody. And what a credit freeze does is it basically says that nobody can take credit out in your name until that freeze is lifted. Now that's a pain for you when you're like, oh man, I wanted to get a, a car loan or open new credit card or whatever. So you have to go lift the freeze, but you can rest assured knowing while the freeze is on that someone can't open credit in your name. So that is a major, that entirely thwarts this whole identity or not all of the identity theft problem, but a significant part of it, and it's a very easy thing to do. Amazing. Um, how we're running out of time, so I, I, I have a hundred different questions I want to ask. Um, <laughs> how secure is the average home system? How easy would it be to get into um, the desktop that 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 basically runs my business from my home? Yeah, most are not very good, uh, unfortunately, and. That is just because the average person it doesn't have these technical capabilities. Uh, some of the devices that they might have deployed at their home environment, you can't change the credentials. Um, I've, I always feel like anything that you set up that connects the internet should, by law, require you to change the credentials. I feel like that, sh that should be a law. Um, or if it's not a law, then at least it should be a best practice for the businesses you know, not give you default credentials, or if it gives you default credentials, you have to change it right away. And the reason for that is that if people don't change the default credentials, that's like publicly available information, right? If you bought a router and it's like, you know, the password is, or the username is username and the password is password. Uh, well, an attacker knows that a lot of people aren't going to change that and they can it's just go try that. Isn't that how those, uh, the, 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 the cyber perverts went after all those um, uh, nanny cams? Because they, they have uh, default credentials? Uh, there's been a lot of stories about nanny cams and webcams getting compromised. And default credentials is, a, is one of the primary ways, yeah. Because people don't change them or don't know to change them. Or in some cases cannot change them. They're actually hard-coded. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Now, I... You'd mentioned listening devices like a Google Home, for example. And I just want to circle back to that one because I sort of had a follow up here as I'm looking at my phone sitting on my desk and go, what, what phone do you have? Like, how do you secure? Like, it's a listening device. How do you what do you do with your with your phone? And, and for people who want to, like, 
mm-hmm. be secure on their phone without having sure. this listening device sitting there? Yeah, so there's a few pretty simple things to do. Uh, so first of all, uh, whether, whichever you have Android OS or iOS, uh, I would turn off the voice assistant um, in terms of the active listening. So for example, on iPhone, you can say, hey Siri, or you can just hold a button and it does the exact same thing. But the difference is the microphone is not always listening to you if you have the voice activation turned off. You can still get the same exact benefit. Or if you have your you know, headphones connected, you can pinch them and it you know, goes right to like, hey, what do you want? And then you say what you need to say. So you still get all the benefits of the voice activation without the downside of the microphone always on. So that would be one thing. Second would be uh, whatever biometrics are available, use them because they are they're effective security techniques and they're easy. So for example, face ID, uh, I look at my phone and it unlocks. And if I don't look at my phone or someone else is looking at the phone, it's locked. That's great. Like there's no, there's with the introduction, starting with the thumbprint, uh, but now with face ID, there is no reason for anybody to not have their phone locked. I mean, you actually actually have to go out of your way to make your phone vulnerable. That's dumb. So make sure that you have whatever biometrics um, installed. And then for every app that you have that offers it, use multi-factor authentication. So I know it sounds like a pain in the butt. You got to like get a text message or use an authenticator. But that technique is so ridiculously effective against stopping an attack because the attacker doesn't have your device. So the likelihood that they would have stolen your device and know your password is like, it's, it's not even worth worrying about. And then the final thing that I would mention is use a password manager. So password managers allow you to use unique passwords for every service. They allow you to use very long, very complex, very difficult to say or, or um, remember or even type passwords. And they make your life easier because they have, they all have browser plugins and everything. So you wind up getting, so each one of these things I just mentioned makes you significantly more secure while also in most cases making your life easier. Now, something that I had heard, and you feel free to dispel this myth, um, and it it relates to the biometric um, side of things that you're talking about. And one of the, I've never switched over um, despite the, the convenience of it, um, because of the consideration of now being compelled. Um, like, i.e., if I am near my phone, anybody who can access me can now access my phone. You can just put my thumb on it, and now you're in, as opposed to requiring me to, you know, you might be able to mm-hmm. force me to put in my mm-hmm. password, but I have to do it because you don't have it. You can't just stick my thumb on mm-hmm. my phone or put my face up. Am I just going, that's not happening, Dave? Like, border security isn't doing that to you. No criminal is doing that to you. You're far weaker with the vulnerability you're leaving open than the chances of that ever happening. Same reason you would get into it with Tesla. Yeah. Dave, I hate to pull you further out of the matrix here, but that scenario (laughs) is is just not realistic. Let's think about, let's game out the scenario you talked about. Okay, so Dave, you don't have Face ID turned on, so someone can't compel you. The robber is standing there with a gun to your head. And you're like, I am not typing in my password. You're going to type in the password. So you having yourself as that intermediary layer, while in theory, it's a, it's a 
good i good concept that you're getting at like let's add layers of defense that i'm very pro this particular use case is uh i just can't see a scenario where it would actually help you now moving on to a different one because you you talk about a big vulnerability i think a lot of people have and i like to think that my house is probably a little more secure than most because we have firewalls and things like that but what what's an affordable way like if you couldn't show up at your parents house and secure their house, which I'm sure you've done, like put in, in some stuff to help protect them. What would you tell them to do? Just some like basic things that any of our listeners can go for 100, 200 bucks, I can dramatically improve, not bulletproof, but dramatically improve the security of my environment. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely buy your own router. Don't use the router that the uh, internet service provider gives you. It'll be also better you'll get better uh, performance um but they're just better the security in the um commercially available devices is better than the ones that the internet service provider gives you uh if you're planning to install a lot of internet connected devices which is today kind of becoming everything like your thermostat your tv your you know everything's kind of becoming connected internet um you want to set up a different network for those than the network where you might have your tax return information and like your normal, uh, your normal life. And that's pretty, I mean, just Google how to set up, how to set up those separate segments. It's pretty straightforward to do. I think the average person can do it. It's not like you need to be an ethical hacker or anything. Uh, but I think the combination of those two is really pretty good. And then obviously doing, all the basics that any security professional will rant about any time about like, you know, how to think about your passwords and all that kind of stuff. But start with those two. And I think you'd be in good shape. Okay. We um, started the show um, with a serious, serious question about national security. We're um, how vulnerable is uh our Western nations to hacking from Russia. That's uh, I guess I, I got to ask it the, the straight up question. Um, is it is it a concern, especially as as um, the situation is getting tenser and tenser by the day? Yeah, I mean, cybersecurity is the theater of war, just the same as uh, sea, air, land, space. It's cybersecurity is it's a realm where war is happening, and at the top of the show, you actually framed the question in a way that, um, I forget exactly what your words were, but it was along the lines of, well, things are different now. And uh, things are actually not different now. What's different now is that maybe people are noticing. Okay. But nations have been attacking each other via cyberspace for decades. Uh, the United States as well. I mean, we're not, you know, and we're not completely innocent in this, but innocence isn't actually the question because it would, that would be like saying we're innocent because we don't have a military. Be like, no, that'd be stupid to like not have (laughs) something to protect yourself. So nations are constantly attacking each other. And what we are uh, definitely going to see in, in our lifetime is as the new normal. And I'm, I'm surprised we haven't exactly seen it quite yet in in the instances happening between Russia and Ukraine right now, but is the combination of a cyber attack paired with a more traditional sea, air, or land-based attack. Like, for example, um, an attack intended to immobilize first responders or something like that at the moment that a missile strike is, you know, landing. And I, this isn't me the paranoid guy with a tinfoil hat in the corner thinking this, like 
there are entire divisions, entire agencies in the United States government that are anticipating that type of combination attack and are you know, fighting against it. I think it was Obama who, I think it was Obama who first declared cyber as a theater of war. But this stuff is absolutely happening. Uh, it's happening during peacetime as well. Uh, all nation, all all of the more developed nations, I should say, are uh, constantly attacking each other, even in peacetime. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to establish a foothold in each other's systems in the event that they need to now take these, you know, maybe you might call them sleeper cells, right? These, uh, this position in their now enemies' uh, networks or whatever and activate them in, in an attack. So, yeah, things are – this has been underway for a very, very long time. The difference is just people are starting to notice it now because Russia is actually very, very good at cyber attack. Um, and the major nations are. I mean, Russia's excellent at it. United States, China. I mean, it's, this is definitely happening. Maybe a, a good question to ask might be how good are we at cyber defense? <laughs> if Russia is really good at the cyber cyber attacks, how good are we at cyber defense? Well, that's a difficult one for me to answer for a number of reasons. One, because I don't have all the information, and two, because I'm you know more inclined to speak objectively in terms of data. But what I can say more subjectively is that uh, I think we're doing a decent job, based on the fact that. Uh, our entire critical infrastructure hasn't been taken down by an attacker because they want to. Um, however, we have an enormously long way to go. Um, when we looked at what happened in the 2016 election where um, uh, sensitive emails actually of both parties were compromised, mm -hmm. uh, Russia released the, the ones they got from the Democrats in order to hurt the Democrats because they felt they would have a more favorable partnership should the Republican candidate win. And, but they, the Republican emails were compromised just the same. They just didn't release them. That was a good example of where our entire democratic system was undermined because what happened after that was, of course, uh, by releasing that information, it influenced the vote uh, or influenced the way that the narrative around the voting process, uh, certainly the way that the whole issue was politicized and then in some cases ignored. Uh, it actually set us back a little bit. So I think that you can definitely correlate leadership decisions by administration about what they prioritize. This administration is prioritizing the uh, you know cyber as a theater of war. The previous administration didn't prioritize as much. I'm not making a political statement. This is not mm -hmm. Democrats versus Republicans. This is who spent what money doing what. And uh, this administration's you know approaching it a little bit differently. And that is going to pay much better dividends in terms of how will we be able to do um, in terms of defending our nation as opposed to some of the decisions that were made in the prior administration. And again, that's not a political statement. That is an objective analysis of how do you defend something by investing in it and by putting the right leaders in place to run those organizations. I imagine you get to see some uh, fairly startling real-time data. And I'm curious if that real-time data supports the statement that it would be wise to invest in cybersecurity right now. I'm in. 
I have <laughs> from a, an opinion on this. <laughs> I directly benefit from saying yes to that question. Um, <laughs> but let's let if if we can just for a moment pretend like I don't personally benefit from saying yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the fundamental truth is I wouldn't have dedicated my life and my career to doing this if I didn't believe this needed to be done and this wasn't worth doing. And so take that with a grain of salt. But the the truth is that the attack landscape is constantly changing. The attackers are getting more and more sophisticated. And the way that organizations approach technology by further adopting it, um, that is only enhancing the target on our backs. And so, yes, I, you know, my own personal bias aside, uh, investing in, not just investing in security, but investing in security in a way that's relevant to a particular organization. That's an important thing because no one has unlimited resources, but finding the way that's going to deliver the most effective, uh, outcome for a specific organization, that is what's going to, uh, that, that definitely needs to be happening. Um, and you know, my bias aside, that is an objective truth. Now, Okay, so we need more people working in it at your your skill. Like, clearly, you're incredibly talented at this. We need to shore up our numbers, I'm sure, because it's a, a big job that, that requires a lot of people. You can't just go, hey, here's all the places to learn it, because you're kind of teaching a bunch of people just a bunch of skills that can be used horribly. How do we end up making sure we end up with the Jedi and not the Sith Lords? Like, how, how do you go in and actually teach people to do this but sort of ensure they end up in, in the right hands? Like are there training programs to go, okay, and we'll guide you through so that we're teaching you how to apply these this way? Or is it just sort of like a free-for-all and we'll take the best hackers that we find and try and pull them over to the good side? Yeah, no, that that's a good question. Uh, I had this funny thing happened to me uh, earlier in my career when a buddy of mine, he's um, he's a super successful investor, uh, investment banker and he invests in all these like, missiles companies and like, you know, he invests in war basically. And um, he hears about what I do and he's like, wait, Ted, you get up on a stage and tell people how things get hacked. He's like, how is that even ethical? There's the bad guys could be in the audience. And the answer is this. Yes. If we, the bad guys are going to learn this stuff too, but the bad guys are definitely going to learn it and we need to teach it to the good guys. And I believe, and this is more than my belief, it's a fundamental truth. Most people are good. Some people are bad. So what we, if we teach everybody and some of the bad people learn how to be bad, they were going to learn how to do it anyway. So the solution is not to not teach the good people. So we need to relentlessly be teaching these ideas and, uh, of course, you know, do the things from when people are children, you know, teach them ethics and morals and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, we have to keep, keep teaching everybody, knowing that some bad apples are going to get the information too. If uh, somebody wanted to go to school to uh, learn how to um, apply um, ethical hacking, uh, you know, to, how to apply their skills towards ethical hacking, is there a program you could recommend? Yeah, they're popping up all over the place. Uh, I mean, we, our entire company came out of the PhD program at Johns Hopkins. So uh, I certainly have a bias uh, towards that one. But, you know, most programs right now are in their infancy, so they're still kind of figuring it out. But uh, you, most are going to help give you the guidance that you need. Okay. Ted Arrington, there are, there are 100,000 other questions I want to ask. And Dave, I can see he's got 100 questions brewing in his mind as well. And 
Um, I guess the only one that's relevant, given we have 30 seconds left, is can we have you on again sometime? It would be my pleasure. Yeah, and you know, for anyone listening, if you want to ask me questions, contact me directly, whatever, just go to tedharrington.com, and I'm, I'm super responsive. And if you want to want to read more about what Ted has to say, Hackable, How to Do the Application Security Right, um, it's the author of uh, that's that, that, that Ted's book, um, Amazon, or uh, any bookseller near you, Ted Harrington, um, Executive Partner and Independent Security Evaluators, thank you so much for spending time with us on Webcology today. Thanks for having me. Uh, friends, that was Ted Harrington, cybersecurity expert and um, voice that's going to keep me awake for the next uh, next week or so. Um, we got to go. We've gone full circle. We have another show coming right up in the studio. So stay tuned to the network. There's some great programming coming up after this. Uh, remember, we're not out of the COVID woods yet. Keep wearing masks. Keep distancing. Keep yourself and your community safe. We will get our, our world and our economy back full scale eventually. Um, on behalf of Dave Davies from Weights and Biases, this is Jim Hedger from Digital Always Media. You can listen to Webcology on WMR.FM, recorded live to podcast on the uh, 24th, of September, 24th of March, 2022. Stay safe, be well, rank well. We'll talk to you next week.